1: Welcome to the New Books Network.
2: Welcome to New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. I'm your host, Michael Van, of Sacramento State University's Department of History. Today I'm doing another Don't Tell Marshall episode, where I break the prime directive and chat with guests about a podcast, not a book. But hey, at least this time it's a solid history podcast about the 30 years war. So let's hope Marshall doesn't defenestrate me. Um, I'm going to apologize now for all the dumb 30 years war jokes. Um, my guests are Chris Wade and Matt Chrisman, both of Chapo Trap House fame. And we're going to discuss Hell on Earth, their 10 part episode on the 30 years, or excuse me, 10 episode series on the 30 years war. Chris Wade is a podcast producer who produces Chapo Trap House, Hell of Presidents, and Introducing, and Infinite Cast. He's also produced and directed short films, music festivals, and many years ago, written for Slate.com. Chris, welcome to New Books in History.
0: Hey, thanks for having me. Glad to be here.
2: Yeah. And Matt Chrisman is our returning champion, as I got to chat with him uh, twice previously on this podcast with episodes on the Chapo Guide to Revolution and on his podcast series, Hinge Points, about crucial turning points in history. He's most well known for his work on the Chapo Trap House podcast, but he's done a number of these series uh, on a po- uh, series of history podcasts, as well as his almost daily grill stream in which he muses about history, Marxist theory, and all sorts of fun stuff. Matt, Welcome back to ch- Uh I, I, I did it again are you serious? Yeah. oh boy yeah. I mean, you know about we're it. gonna leave it in we're gonna leave it in it's in mm-hmm. yeah, okay we'll full full fanboy nervousness right here okay Matt, welcome back to new books in history. <laughs> did I get it right that time?
1: yes yes
2: Thank okay. You. Well, the, the nervousness is my form of praise for um, <laughs> uh, the work that both of you have done, along with your colleagues. Um, keeping a number of us sane over the past uh, couple of years, um, thank you for all the good vibes with Choppa. Um, so without giving away too much, um, you know, no spoilers here in the 30 years war. Uh, really don't want to know how this one ends. I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm pulling for a couple of these folks. Um, you've got 10 episodes plus secret bonus content on 30 years war. Um, but the, the series is more than just the war. You give context uh, starting a century before the war with Martin Luther. And you also show us what the war creates a system of state capitalism that will transform the world. Um, But before I forget and before we get into the content, how can people find uh, the series?
0: Uh, this series will live exclusively on Patreon, on Chapo Trap House's Patreon. That is patreon.com slash Chapo Trap House. The first episode will premiere uh, live, free for everyone on the Chapo Trap House feed. Uh, anywhere you get podcasts, you can listen to the first episode. That will be uh, just under Chapo Trap House. Uh, but then if you want to get the remaining nine series, plus however many bonus remaining nine episodes plus however many bonus episodes we come up with uh you will have to subscribe to chapo on patreon that's patreon.com slash chapo trap house episodes will be coming out every wednesday i believe starting january 11th for 10 straight weeks
2: awesome okay um and um can i just do a quick run through the episodes um Please. Might, I'm, I'm just You sent me, I mean, I got to listen to a few of them and and they're, you know, they're really fast. They're really fun. Um, and just to give a sense of the trajectory, you start off with the first episode on God, uh, which was a really uh, great discussion of Martin Luther and the Protestant Reformation. Second episode, death on the black death and its impact on, uh, feudalism and the rise of the Habsburgs. Um, episode three, uh, Kings state of the European dynasties, uh, I think you guys did kind of a, a sport style going around the horn thing, looking at to to Europe at the the dawn of the um the 17th century. Um, windows, um, we know what that's about, right? All the uh, AP history nerds um, from the defenestration of Prague to the uh, the start of the war um, intervention. The Habsburgs um, expanding the war and um, uh, it re- becomes truly an international episode six, uh, The North, which is um, about white walkers and such <laughs> things. Um,
1: hey, so in a, that's, I mean, Swedes are pretty identical. Pretty, pretty much to, the same
0: way. from it's kind of how they were received in Germany when they when they arrived. <laughs> Yeah, <laughs> yeah,
2: and um, then Hell, which I uh, was one of the, the later ones I got to listen to, um, which is that point of complete stalemate and the, the really the the absolute horrors of the Thirty Years' War. Why I think maybe so many uh, high school kids get into the Thirty Years' War in tenth uh, grade or whenever they cover it these days. It's very metal, very metal, right? And it, I, I think in an interview you guys called this the most metal war.
1: Oh, absolutely. Yeah,
0: <laughs> it, it's right at that intersection where a bunch of, uh, you know, technologies and war styles are intersecting in their development to create. Yes, the the most diabolical forms of warfare um, up to that point, you know, and, and, you know, and the ones that are most welded with, you know, cool medieval things. So you still got guys at, with axes going up against guys with, uh, you know, gunpowder and stuff.
1: Yeah, there's getting... still suits of armor, even yeah. though there's guns too, and everybody has apocalyptic religious convictions. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. it's yeah, it's the intersection of all of the most uh, gnarly stuff in European history.
2: Yeah, it definitely has uh, Molly Hatchet vibes. Um, that that whatever that genre of metal was yes. I was exposed to in the late '70s. Um, two more. State on the peace of Westphalia, which uh, all the political science nerds in the in the audience were very excited about. To talk about the Peace of Westphalia, um, episode nine, Revolt, where you're going to talk about um, the impact on England and the, um, the English Civil War, and then ten, A New God, uh, Commonwealth Protectorate, and Restoration up to the glo- uh, the Glorious Revolution and the way in which the the British and the Dutch um, create a new state system that uh, transforms the world. Um, did you guys have a favorite episode? you've done so far i think you're almost finished with these um of
1: the ones we've recorded i think we both agree that uh the north is a really good one
2: oh i didn't listen to uh, that okay
1: because it, i mean it's it covers a, a relatively short period of time it's like the the year plus between the swedish invasion of pomerania and the death of gustavus Adolphus. so it's a it's it's relatively streamlined narrative and it's got all these amazing ups and downs we got some and we got a chance to do uh like blow by blows of a few battles, which is really fun to do in a podcast and not really anything we have done before on another one.
0: Yeah. Uh, yeah. That one's a lot of fun. That's, that's the most, uh, and, and I, I've been using this comparison all the time because I uh, want to compare the project that I'm doing with the, one of the most popular media properties on earth right now, but that is the most, the one that reads the most, like a game of Thrones episode because yeah. uh, self-contained, but I'm also very partial to the hell episode just because I, I think that describing the, uh, amount of of apocalyptic destruction that actually was brought upon the peoples of Germany in in grim detail, uh, really gets to one of the reasons that we wanted to, to tell this story. Uh, you know, the the because it is all, all the hell that is visited on Earth is all done in the name of creating a new kingdom of heaven.
2: Yeah, and I I, I got to listen to uh, a rough cut of that episode, and what I really liked about it is you do all the intense 30 years war stuff that makes the high school kids go nuts. Um, but also talk about the re- the actually important stuff like tulips yes. and, um, and then the founding of the VOC, the Dutch East India company, which I want to ask you about later on, which is as a world historian, I think the real story here, gentlemen, mm-hmm. but you know, I've got my own biases, but, um, that truly global transformation that's going on, you know, at, at the same time. um, so I, I guess the big picture, the big question would be, um, you know, with all your commercial and critical critical success with Chapo and the opportunities you guys must have. I mean, you guys just got profiled in GQ. Um, and it was a pretty nice glamour shot of you guys. Um, <laughs> um, yeah, who, Matt, who are you wearing? Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, wh- why a podcast? On, uh, <laughs> why a podcast on the Thirty Years' War? Um, I know that's a little open ended, maybe too open ended, but um, uh, what? Why a history podcast? Um, of all the things you could be doing, and then um, then why the Thirty Years' War? Chris, do you want to? And-
0: yeah. Um, well, the, this one specifically comes from us building the muscles of doing a history podcast on hell of presidents which we you know Matt and I always vibed on history just interpersonally and I'm a big fan of a lot of history podcasts and I think Matt is as well and oh yeah so that's basically be- the only ones I listen to yeah exactly so we we basically just got an opportunity that landed in front of us to say hey do you want to do some extra podcasts and that like the idea of doing something in in history something more long form with Matt which just seemed obvious we came up with the president's thing because that's was one of the most obvious, one of the things that we've talked about the most, especially, you know, because we were on the trail, the presidential trail was like at the height of the um, 2020 election when we really conceived of that thing. So that was obvious. And then about halfway through doing that series, um, and I think we've told the story on on other pods, but basically uh, when I have trouble sleeping, I just pick really long Wikipedia pages that I know that I can spend like, a, you know, a half hour reading and not get to the bottom of and then fall asleep. And I, you know, I pulled up the 30 years war one just because it was on my mind for some reason and started reading it. And then suddenly a lot of things started clicking that, oh, this isn't just, you know, a random obscure war that you have to learn about for AP Euro. This is something that hits on a lot of things that Matt had been talking about on his vlogs that we touch on in the show. Um, The kind of the development of Protestant mindset, the uh you know, a, a, uh, climate change, in, uh, I- incident, a, uh, financial collapse, uh, the loss of legitimacy of ruling institutions, uh, all these things were kind of bubbling up in here. Plus it's just a big, as we've said, gnarly story to sink our t- teeth into. So I brought it up to Matt and Matt thought, started thinking, and I don't know if you want to take it from here.
1: Yeah, because, uh, it had not been, I, I would not have come on my own for sure. Uh, Chris, Chris suggested it and, it immediately struck me as something that'd be really fun because it is, for one thing, it's, it's this, uh, it is kind of a, a a space that hasn't really been filled. There hasn't been, to my knowledge, a, a really thorough examination of this period. Uh, Patrick Wyman did a, a great pod series for Tides of History about the early modern period, but he stopped at the Siege of Malta uh at, Uh, Apparently he was going to go to the uh, war of uh, the the 30 years war, but he just got sick of it by that point. (laughs) He was like, I don't want to do this for another two years. I want to do something else. Uh, So that, uh, that left kind of an opportunity. And, and then the more, yeah, looking into it, you just see snapping into focus, all of these historical resonances to the current moment. And you, you, you are able to sketch out sort of history, history in uh, like the, the broad amplitudes, the long durée and how, you how and I I started getting excited about how we could turn that into a narrative that had like a really fun uh you know back and forth and, and that dealt with the kind of stuff that's just fun to listen to, you know, like battles and defenestrations and witch burnings, while also connecting it to a bigger story that not that wouldn't just make sense of capitalism's birth, but also the the kind of demise that we're living in right now.
2: Yeah, and um, and it's it's that 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 crucial transition point in history. I mean, it's capitalism's birth and the 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 death throes of the feudal system, and it's this this key turning point. Um, who? So you you mentioned the um the Tides of History podcast. So who who are some of your other influences? Like who do you listen to, or who do you read? And you say I want to do that. Like I mean, what 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 are you, what are your models or or influences?
0: Uh, well, I'll say that Carlin, Dan Carlin, uh, was one of the first podcasts that I listened to and it like followed from episode to episode and, and really, it was a guy that really got me, helped get me into podcasts. Uh, so definitely Carlin, I do think he's like a fantastic audio history storyteller. I mean, his voice is for even down to like his voice is phrasing his, his syntax, uh, you know. He's uh he, he is considered the goat, as many would say. Uh but then from there I got into uh Mike Duncan's Revolutions, I think on the second series that he was doing, and, and I've been following that show since its beginning. And uh he just published last Sunday his last episode of Revolutions after doing it for eight seven or eight years, and uh that has just been a joy and a pleasure to follow um all the way through. And and the way that he Segment stories and, and processes them and, and divides big picture things down into individual narratives and kind of brings out characters has, has been something that, you know, I would I would aspire to get into the realm of uh, with with what we're doing here. Um, so that that series is over definitively Like he did the last one. Yeah, yeah. What, yeah. what was his last uh, revolution? Uh, Russia. Oh,
2: there, there's a few more after that.
0: Yeah, he, he's, he's talked about this, that, that he was like, he thought about going into the 21st century, but he's been doing it for eight years and he wanted <laughs> yeah. to move on. And he did. Yeah. It took him two plus years just to cover Russia. Yeah. Uh, so he went into real granular detail there. I begr- do not begrudge him uh, uh, stopping that. Yeah, yeah. Um, yeah I, I also enjoy
1: uh, the Mike Duncan. I listened to the history of Rome before uh, the revolutions one. uh I actually know, I think I started listening to revolutions and then I went back and listened to the history of Rome also. Uh, And in terms of books, uh, one of them specifically about the 30 years war that I read probably 10 years ago that helped me think that uh, not only that this would be a good project, but also gave me uh, an idea of a a way to uh, communicate history in a uh, captivating way uh, is C.V. Wedgwood's uh, book, The 30 Years War. Which is uh, still one of my favorite history books that I've ever read. Uh, so, uh, and the, the intersection of of topic and the style really uh, spoke to me there.
2: Like, uh, how, how so? Can you can you go on about that? I mean, as as an academic historian who uh, you know we don't have as many people reading our books as um, people are listening to your podcast. Um, <laughs> um, what 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 do what do we need to do? What what do you think that really makes. Historical narrative more engaging for a wider audience. I mean,
1: well, I uh, one thing that helps is just prose style. Yeah, uh, and I think that's one thing that Wedgwood had uh, that stands that that stood apart at the time, and 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 I feel like has sort of been uh, lost not because of a lack of talent or or even uh, you know ability or anything, but but just the uh, the emphasis on uh you know ne- finding a specific niche around which to you know build a career and it doesn't really lend itself to the the sort of risk taking that is necessary to uh to try to communicate with a, a conscious attempt at a, a literary style as opposed to trying to get across the, uh, the ideas that you're you're focusing on.
2: I think that's a really insightful critique. I mean, so many academic historians are really trapped to the tenure cycle and have to write a certain way for university presses. And um, you know, so for I mean, for some uh, you know, tenure committees, having to uh having someone present a book that's published with a popular press or trade press doesn't cut it. They it needs to follow this sort of academic cookie-cutter model. Um and I think that I mean, has been a detriment to academic historians wider reach i think that's that's really insightful um how do so how do you guys do your research for the series um i mean before we started recording chris was saying that like you started reading about a year or so ago for this
1: uh i i personally i we we tried not to overlap too much uh like he read uh the the the, the wedgwood again uh, mm-hmm. or he, uh, he for the i think for the first time yes uh, that was the first uh, time i and, read the report and with... i read uh uh peter wilson's 30 years war book which came out uh about uh 15 years ago uh, uh europe's Tragedy, which is you know, the doorstop with all of the details and without the the the, <laughs> the style uh but with the information you know so uh that was sort of my baseline to just get the whole thing as as uh as much as possible and then uh, a few other i kind of like that d- dropped like deep depth charge big histories to sort of uh be a uh foundation to then get more specific about so i read th- that i read uh dearman mccullough's uh book on the reformation uh and uh jeffrey parker's book global crisis about the 17th century crisis and then uh from there i was looking more for uh for st- stuff with um uh with primary sources basically to build uh, an architecture of you know quotes and and details uh uh to, to put around that
2: yeah the the way you guys bring in uh voices from um from the documents is really great um i think um maybe it was in the in the discussion of the witches you were reading reading something that um found that a really nice blending of the the narrative with uh with the voices um and, and what's up with all these 30 Years War books being so big, like the 30 Years War? Dude, I mean, Jeffrey, Jeffrey Parker's fantastic book, which is more than just 30 Years War. I, I just looked it up and there's a new abridged version. And the abridged version is 600 and something pages. <laughs> and I mean, pa-
0: Parker is, you
2: know, uh, you know, one of the greats, but good Lord, that book is so big. Um,
0: <laughs> well, I mean, that's one of the things that we encountered even doing this uh podcast to begin with is that there is it it truly is a uh, Gordian knot of of an event because there's especially just the polity of the Holy Roman Empire is so complicated that to try to get a clear one sentence exploration of why is this thing like this uh, you find yourself feeling like you need to then write another Two paragraphs to describe why <laughs> the subject of that sentence is like that, and then another two paragraphs to describe why the verb of that sentence is like that. Because there's <laughs> it's so intermingled uh with all these different insanely complicated feudal structures that that finding any kind of clarity in it is genuinely really difficult. And then you at least for me, I end up second guessing second guessing myself of like, oh, am I cutting this too close to the bone? Am I trying for the purpose of clarity saying something that's inaccurate or something like that. So, uh, you know, we, we, as a side, we like a, a friend of ours, a designer friend, you know, got in touch with us and was like, Oh, Hey, I heard you're doing this. And we we're thinking maybe putting together like a, an online appendix, uh, you know, just like a reference map, you know, we, we, he said it like, Oh, you know, like the map at the back, back of the book. And I, I am into your projects. and I would like to help you with this. And we were like, okay, that's great. Are do you, are you sure you have the time for this? He's like, yeah, we're just putting together an interactive map. And every call we've had with him, he's like, it just devolves into being like, "All right, so the Duchy of Baden-Durlach is different from the Duchy, of, you know? It's like if, if that's contained. So, I, do I make that nested within the Holy Roman Empire, or is that a separate? Yeah. Okay, so like, how do we Margaret distinguish the Habsburg nested, realm yeah.
1: from the Holy Roman Empire?" What about the parts that are technically part of the Holy Roman Empire but are a du jour independent, like Switzerland? It's, yeah, it's it's a very densely layered lasagna.
2: <laughs> but the world really does need an, inter- an accessible online interactive map of the Holy Roman Empire. I mean, you're that... going to
0: get one with this show. Okay. Yeah.
2: <laughs> um, do you guys run the script past anyone for like a peer review, fact checking? Like, what do you. you going for it i mean
1: uh we put that in god's hands basically you know we're we're we're, <laughs> we're uh popular you know podcasters we're gonna let the market decide we're, we're we're pretty confident that we're uh we're all we're that everything we're saying is you know on the uh is accurate to some degree the stuff that isn't you know up uh for factual debate is interpretation and those are you know that's kind of what we're bringing to it and so we're kind of comfortable with letting the audience take from it what they will
0: yeah i again when we're trying to write this i'm, I'm trying to make things as simple and clear in the, on the factual basis as possible and i mean that's honestly the big challenge of my part of writing i think we'll might get into how we divide labor, labor a little bit late later uh but yeah i i try to just keep the amount of factual information in it as as simple and clear and you know easily checkable as possible because I am checking everything that I, I put in because the real thing that we're trying to get here is the interpretation the story that we're trying to tell and you know that's the, why we are doing this podcast to be like we can look at a set of fairly verifiable facts from here and through uh, particularly Matt's uh, genius of interpretation and and theorizing come present a conclusion of why these things happen um, that we think is the interesting part of the story. And, you know, at the end of hell presence and at the end of this, I you know, put a little bit of a disclaimer being like, look, this is just one way to look at the history. It is the way that makes sense to us. And it is, and because it makes so much sense to us, it's how we're trying to communicate it. But with every historical interpretation, it is, you know, it, part of a tapestry of ways that can be looked at things all with different levels of quote unquote accuracy and the true truth is looking at it all the ways and judging and taking your own conclusions
2: yeah, and so I wanted to ask you about how the how you guys handled presenting this series. Um, Hell of Presidents was uh, a bit of the Matt Chrisman show, the Matt Chrisman magic. I, I say with <laughs> a great deal of praise. I mean, you you have a charismatic way of of uh, talking about the the presidents in this history, and and you guys did a thing where um, Chris would would throw a question at you, Matt, and um, you'd sort of respond. It was I think you guys compared it to that cartoon with the uh the dog professor and the, and the earnest young inquisitive Mr. boy Peabody and Sherman Peabody and Sherman that's right I, I was I was trying to remember the that earlier the dog professor the dog professor dog professor inquisitive boy um yes and um, but this but this is a little different i mean this is like truly co-hosted and um uh and I, I think most of the the episodes you're you're starting these chris with a sort of a
0: narrative moment um yeah well i think that we're drawing on what we learned from hell of presidents. And, you know, I, I will speak format that he has an insane font of a re- historical recall that I, I simply do not have. I, I have a terrible memory for facts, dates, things like that. I have to write down every single thing I say. I cannot go off the dome for anything. Uh, and also, you know, Matt's own brand of interpretation. But what Matt lacks, and I don't think he will begrudge me for saying this, is any kind of uh, organizational yes. uh, processing. <laughs> so, you know, uh, what I, you know, the reason that Hell of Presence is able to exist is because I can sit down and kind of listen to Matt yell at me about history for a while and then figure out how to organize it into something coherent and then give it back to him for him to repeat it, repeat it back. That's how we did Hell of Presence. Matt went off the top of his head, for often outlined, but mostly spoke extemporaneously for hella presidents for this. Uh, I think mostly because we'd had that practice and figured out a way to make these things work. Uh, we ended up, yeah, scripting the whole thing, which, you know, again, I think our roles are basically the same. I'm mi- mostly setting up this happened, this happened, this happened, this happened. Matt, why did that happen? But because we're able to write the whole thing and go back and forth, we can kind of make it Easy to say, t- Oh, you'll take this thing, and then I can move this part that you've said down here, and then that flows a little better. And just from a podcast production standpoint, I think I also wanted to try to, you know, keep it a little more even, so it wasn't like, you know, I, you know, Matt would be speaking at three or four pages at a time, just to keep the flow back and forth a little better, because I think that that works. It's more comprehensible to a podcast audience than long monologues and then short yeah. questions. Yeah. Yeah. And it yeah, reminds and, me of yeah.
2: your 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 buddies um um I oh I'm trying to blank on the on the podcast. Um they did they did Korea blow, recently. Blowback. Blowback. Blow Blowback. Yeah. Yes. Where they 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 have a really nice pattern of of going back and forth and the 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 odd little audio clip but not overwhelmed with uh mm-hmm. with the post production was that yeah, s- yeah. similar I mean, sort of model It's and the pacing? same
1: sort of uh, genre uh and and we divided up basically as, as Chris said like he's providing a narrative architecture and then I am providing this sort of interpretive uh, structure that's threaded through it but uh, and I've been very much uh, been enjoyed and, and been rewarded by having to actually sit down and you know put put something put something down uh, to fill it out beforehand and to not sort of rely too heavily on uh, just uh, improvisation. And I felt like it's really strengthened it. Um, uh, I feel like we were able to get, you know, to some, uh, to create a, a episodes that have uh, a coherent structure to them. And, and we've been willing, and we've been able to get uh, a little elliptical and, and I I'm, I'm think maybe a little challenging with the way that we structured these episodes where we're going back and forth in time, Where we're introducing concepts that we're not going and and events that we're not going to necessarily uh, explicate until later. But I I, am hoping, my hope is that that kind of friction makes it uh, an even more uh, engaging experience for people because I do think that throughout it, 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 the the pieces do latch together.
2: Yeah. Matt, I got a question for you. Um, I mean, you have produced this incredible body of oral work like with the grill stream and then the very various podcasts do you do you write much
1: i have not i've always been very hard i've been very bad at writing uh i'm one of those people who sits down writes a sentence and instead of just getting going through uh very quickly i start seeing what's wrong with the sentence i can't think of a thing that's better i just sort i I, i'm at the end of the day a feckless uh lazy uh (laughs) Person, so it's always been hard for me to to commit to seeing things right written like that. One of the reasons that I was able to to podcast is is, is the ephemeral nature of it. And that that kind of let me uh, loose in a way that I have a hard time with writing. But but this thing- project has yeah. let me had led me to write for the most I have in a long time, and it's been uh, it's been helpful. Uh, and hopefully, I will be able to continue that. I, I have other ideas and projects we want to go on after this one, and um, I'm hoping to write more a, as a result of this experience.
2: Did you oh. did you write the inebriated? What is it? Inebriated past? Inebriated? Not inebriated historian. Um.
1: Uh, the, yeah, the inebriated past episodes. Those uh, are mostly uh, I I I will go off of a uh, um, an outline. Uh-huh. Uh, so I'll have certain. Uh, lines and certain bits uh written down but then the connective tissue is is is, is in the moment yeah Uh, yeah. but that might be changing too after this i might i've been toying with the idea of doing some one-off inebriated past episodes that would be all or mostly scripted we'll see
2: how that goes I've, I've, i've really enjoyed those over the years um yeah i'm sorry chris were you gonna say something
0: i'll also just say that for myself as well um right mutually writing or sharing a google doc where we're both mm-hmm. filling in after each other is great motivation for me because you can just mm-hmm. like basically like i'll go in and see that matt's written up to where i've gotten to and i'll be like damn got to put more stuff in so matt so matt has more stuff to go off of and then it motivates me to get another few paragraphs in every single day and then i think probably the same for matt to you know it, it's it's been a, a a pleasure throughout this process to open up the doc and be like, oh, there's so much more stuff in here. I got to add more stuff to it. And uh, that's one of the things that, you know, as, as also a uh, sluggish unmotivated uh, podcast person in general uh, has been one of the best ways to keep me plugging away at this thing and keep me on deadline the entire time. Uh, I really enjoy the the work of mutual writing. And there have been several days when we, you know, it's fun that we're like both in there at the same time, working at different parts of the script and can kind of go back and forth and re- see what other people have referenced or even like note each other in real time on, on the script. Uh, uh, full, yeah, that yeah. has
1: been a big part of what has allowed me to move forward is that when I, when I start, I'm not ha- facing a blank page, which is the thing that, you know, for the procrastinator, self-doubting type writer is is death. There's, there are these uh, there's this structure with these spots, these holes in it, and I, all I have to do is just patch the hole and, and get from one pot to the next. And and that has been uh, very easy relative to my other attempts at writing and uh, and very, yeah, as, as Chris said, very satisfying and rewarding to just see there's a, there's new I, I log on and there's new holes for me to fill.
2: Yeah. We love the Google Docs. What a great yeah. And holding each other accountable, as the yes, kids say, yeah. right? <laughs> no, I mean it, it this is funny because um, you know, academic historians are famously do their work alone. And compared to other disciplines, we have very few co-authored pieces. And I got to do something um with a co-author last year, uh, writing on the Google Doc. We did a political history of surfing, and it was really fun to uh to be bouncing off ideas and and so much easier now, but um, that collaborative work again, not what most of the the academic historians do for just sort of the nature of the discipline and the way we're trained.
0: Well, get yourself um, a co-author. Get yourself a Google Doc. I bet you'll write yeah. at least. Uh, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling you, twenty five percent faster. <laughs>
2: mm-hmm. Um, So I had a uh, uh, before we like get into this stuff and and we are going to get into some stuff here um i wanted to uh, ask you guys how you balance um your understanding of structure which um matt has been like really incredible on um um, and your understanding of structure, which some might characterize as, as Marxist or materialist in its analysis, with the agency of individual actors, right? I mean, this is the, one of the big grad school questions. Um, and the Thirty Years' War is a perfect example of this because it can be it can be a real trap because uh, you can get really mired down in the political minutiae. I mean, just trying to make sense of the Holy Roman Empire and these dynastic claims. Um, and it can just lead to going down the rabbit hole of historical trivia Um, as cool as some of those details may be. um, But the big picture is so important for, for Germany, for Europe and, you know, arguably for world history. So how, how were you balancing that sense of structure and the, the larger significance of the story with the cool intricacies? Not all at once. (laughs) (laughs) Uh,
1: I mean, as, I, as we were saying uh, a lot of it comes down to the way that we write it we, uh, with like Chris is in charge mostly of providing the narrative, uh, the biographical information about the specific figures that we want to focus on uh, and yeah, the 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 anecdotes. And then I ground them. I, I bring, I, I connect them and the connective tissue is a uh, contextualization of, of exactly what is informing these decisions. What is shaping these people one way or the other? Uh, the the forces that they are either fighting against or embodying, uh, and I think that's how we, we we are able to bring both of those together uh, in a way that does not uh, obscure either, but rather bo- allows both to highlight each other.
0: Yeah, and like <laughs> I I am I am no uh, you know. Um, I I'm not the most well-versed Marxist but I think that Marx really nailed this one with uh the men make their own history but they do not make it as they please quote mm-hmm. uh, and I think, I think that think that's Yeah, I think that's kind of our guiding principle too of how to approach the great men of these stories and and it also is something that you know doing the president's podcast which we set out to do as being like, let's just talk about the presidents and then turned into a history of America through these people. Uh, but the way that we approached it was kind of talking about, you know, not in any like counterintuitive of uh, or, like everything you know about this guy is wrong. But, you know, we, we discovered that the way that we wanted to talk about the presidents is not as these great movers of history, but people who are propelled by and move through history and are constrained by it so we have gotten into the mode of talking about historical figures in a way of yes they can act and their personalities their upbringings their ideologies affect the way that they act um but they are at all point uh Constrained by the contingencies of history and what circumstances they find themselves, and the forces of politics, society, economics that put those contingencies and constraints around them. So you do have to get into the personality of any individual person, and that's what makes it interesting. We love hearing about like the weirdos, the psychos, the uh, the romantics of history uh, that are that all consider themselves the unique heroes of their times. Uh, But often the funny part for me or the grand irony uh, ironies are the way that they are just as blinded and just as uh, directed as everyone else around them by the material forces that they have come up within.
1: Yeah. Like even if they're being carried carried forward, like they feel like they I'm sure uh, like that is a subjective experience of mastery over, you know, time and space. But as soon as those winds change. They are often just brought down because there is always something uh, uh, in the the era in the moment that they are not able to access and that they're not able to in- anticipate, and that ends up being the thing that uh, brings them down.
2: Yeah, and this this is a theme that obviously you and um, Daniel Besner engage in the uh, Hinge Points podcast. Um, where I mean, this you know, how how important is individual historical agency within these structures? Um, so let's get into the subject matter. Um, why on earth the Thirty Years' War? Um, what possible relevance does it have for the kids today?
1: I mean, just in terms of you know, if you if you if the kids today want to uh, uh, engage in a history that is as something that is relatable, then. Uh, the Thirty Years' War is is absolutely chock full of that because it is a system, uh, a political and social system that has essentially exhausted itself. Is no longer able to uh, manage the real conditions that had been imposed on it by material changes, uh, coming under a final uh, uh, external shock in the form of a, a, a climate emergency that uh, leads to this widespread breakdown uh and break out of violence across uh well the entire world but uh, specifically uh, western europe and how uh the phenomenon that are part of that experience uh are ones that we can see all around us uh in 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 sort of uh as farce uh uh shadows today
0: yeah 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 Yeah. and i think a part of it also is, and you know, I, I I and we don't want to get like prescriptive about how anybody should feel about anything, but I think both Matt and I kind of look at the way that a lot of people process the world at this moment through this specific era, through the Trump era, through the COVID era, through uh, the you know post-2008 financial collapse era. Uh, climate change climate change yes uh it sure does seem like there is a general crisis going on you know and i think that you tend to see in a lot of people um the whatever the modern manifestation of apocalyptic thinking is that we are somehow privileged to be living through i mean a, a kind of privilege to be living through the end of the world in some way and i think one of the reasons that we wanted to go back to this is go and look at another group of people who sincerely felt themselves living through the end of the world. And, you know, I don't think we want to say that our situation will end up exactly like this situation, or we can draw direct predictions about the immediate future from looking at how these specific circumstances in the mid 17th century turned out. But you can certainly find a lot to identify with the people there and kind of, in an almost hopeful way, see that the world kept moving afterwards. Sure, yeah. it had changed. Uh, it was something different. Uh I don't think that we can even possibly say if it was better or worse. It is simply the progress of history. And yeah. there is something about looking at a, the history of the Western world and the world around it, though we don't get into the non-Western world, going through a general crisis and coming out uh, the other um, side to say, well, gee, what what does it look like for the world, for our specific culture and society, for me personal, personally, to imagine living through another general crisis? Right, and and I
2: wanted to pick up on that for the my next question. I mean, the, yes, this is this potentially apocalyptic moment in the eyes of the historical actors, but you know, we do know that the world goes on, and and actually something new came out of this. It, mm-hmm. And I think one, I think you said in interviews that one of the uh, the themes of the series, or maybe the main argument, is that it's this process that births modernity mm-hmm. in its political and economic forms. Um, could you speak to that?
1: Uh, yeah just that uh, that uh, feudalism the feudal uh, structure that uh, the elites of, of Europe uh, were all embedded in uh was exhausted but of course no person embedded within it could have the perspective to know that really so but so they all strove for their own uh positions within it and uh without knowing it every action that they made every course of action they decided upon deepened this crisis and, 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 uh, hastened it, it's the collapse of one order and built the, the sinews of another one, uh, us unconsciously, uh, that process is, uh, is always happening and it's happening now. And I think that, that, yeah, if there's a use here, uh, it's, it's to be reminded that, uh, that something is always happening subterraneanly uh, during moments of crisis and of even times of, uh, of, uh, of stability and that the, the birthing process is, is making a world that is fundamentally alien to the one that exists. uh, And in that sense is uh, the end of a world, uh, but that humanity continues uh, and that the, whatever, whatever is in humanity that is, worth preserving also continues
2: well but so i mean you say subconsciously and and um you know without them really realizing it but they're but they're making real decisions regarding the organizing structures of capitalism with the Dutch Burgers, you know, creating stock markets and invest uh, trading shares and so forth, and um, the war ends with the Treaty of Westphalia, which all the political science folks love to love to point to as the birth of the modern state system. I mean, there's some conscious decisions there. So, I mean, what 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 is it about the 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 legacy for capitalism uh, or the legacy for the Western modern state system that you see coming out of the Thirty Years' War that's so important?
1: Uh, well uh, the the things like the the creation of, of the of the modern corporate uh, entity is is a big one the the acknowledgement that the universe the era of a universal monarchy, the pretension of a universal monarchy that undergirded a lot of uh, medieval uh, statecraft had been extinguished uh, and that uh, that these European states would be in a competition for with one another for resources their elites uh, would be in competition internally over power and then bet- uh, between powers uh, over these resources. Uh, and that, that they would uh, they were all thrust into the position of, uh, of embracing technological changes, uh, cultural changes like Calvinism, like the, the, the stock uh, like the corporate uh, structure that could advance their state interests. Uh, And in the short term, that led to certain uh, rulers uh, uh, continuing and extending their power. But in the long term, uh, it undermined the entire land based uh, authority structure that had undergirded feudalism and that that was never abandoned ideologically at the top of any of these uh, structures. Uh, but but what but was eventually ceded to these more dynamic uh, merchant urban classes uh, in the interest of defeating their competitors.
0: And I would just say to go on to go back a little bit to when we're talking about you know individual action and also what you were just you know, saying about these people are making decisions. I think one of the interesting things to that I've pulled out of this and I hope that we uh, elucidate is kind of the interplay between the development of intellectual systems and ideologies and actual action, because so much of the, you know, on paper reasons that these wars are fought are over questions of religion, of faith, of ideology, of the minutia of Christian worship, about whether the bread becomes God or the God becomes bread, things like that. And you have these people who are building these, structures of ideology around one thing, the way that they worship, uh, the way that they uh, you know relate to each other on, on elements of faith, while at the same time building these uh, corporate structures, these ways of doing business, these ways of interacting between these state and finance and stuff. And at the time, you know, I, I think a lot of these people would would imagine that these are not related things, but at the same time, oh would you look at that? They're developing this faith structure that at every plate, Point reaffirms and reasserts the exact financial structure that is most uh, you know profitable for them. Uh, wouldn't you know it that it turns out God does want me to form a, co- a, a corporation and colonize the world around us. That and that happens to be the only and correct thing that the real God wants. And you know, I think that there is something about uh, that that is c- important to look at. It, it will feel familiar to people to see these. It, these things that are often projected to us as completely uh, separate things, my political ideology and the way that I behave in the world, uh, it just so happens that they are perfectly in line at all times. And I think that that's a very familiar thing to look at, be it the, uh, you know, the Dutch burgers of the of 1630s Amsterdam or, you know, your ruling classes today. And it, it
2: really is this moment that that, that does create modernity and in, in so many um so many facets. So getting into the stuff, I mean, who are some of your fa- favorite characters from this history? Um I really enjoyed your opening discussion of uh Martin Luther and the you guys called him the original poster. Um, Indeed, yes. never stops posting, right? Um, no, that so, he
1: posted his way into a new uh, reality. It's it's pretty. It's what we all dream to do, really. Yes. Is that, uh, <laughs> you know, if we find ourselves in a in a unacceptable uh, situation, that just the sheer uh, will of our posts will shift the world around us. And for most of us, it's too late to do that. But uh, uh, Luther was at the right time with the right, uh, technology and, uh, the right brain to make it happen. Uh, so he is fascinating. Uh, I also am a big fan of, uh, uh, Wallenstein, who's another, one of yeah. these prefigurative characters who is able to bring together, uh, so many of these innovations in, uh, military technology, military technology, and also, uh, financial technologies and, uh, and, uh, even, uh, agricultural innovations to, to, lift himself up, but in the process become this paranoid sort of Nixonian figure, uh, <laughs> who is only able to rely on astrology to, uh, to chart his <laughs> way through this, uh, this un- otherwise, uh, uh, illegible, uh, fast moving world around him.
0: Uh, I, I'm a big fan of the, uh, the kind of heroic losers in the pragmatists, uh, of this, which, you know, pragmatist seems like the, uh, most boring type of person but in a time of acute uh stress uh, they tend to be really fascinating i mean we just got i just finished writing about uh our segments on cromwell uh who i think is one of maybe the more fascinating and difficult to pin on uh, put put a pin on figures that we've covered just because you know he he can he can be your hero or your, your angel or your devil uh <laughs> depending on how you look at him you know cuz But he is one of these unique figures that is that is riding with the current of the history rather than uh, trying to stop it or reverse it or go parallel to it. And that puts him uh, from a, a, you know, obscure country gentleman to in charge of the kingdom of England uh, and Ireland.
1: Ireland. As we're saying, though, when when the when the limits of a certain uh, current are found, he is not able through his own will to force uh, history to keep going with him, he is is instead pulled back down to earth, and and mm-hmm. that's that's the push and pull between these individual personalities and the broader uh, structures that we we like to emphasize.
2: I think in one of the episodes I got to listen to, you you guys make the comment that the Thirty Years' War is a series of individuals testing the limits of their own power, and then finding out they've gone too far and get yes. it off, right?
0: Yeah. It, it it really is a endless series of of princes and margraves uh fucking around <laughs> <and> inviting out. <laughs> <laughs> because it is your responsibility to to see exactly how powerful you are. I mean,
1: if you uh you you, you have no honor if you're uh, uh accepting less than you could get. Uh which is why the character who sort of resonates the most as a, as a more modern person Uh, Is uh, John George, uh, the elector of Saxony, who has gone down in history as sort of a feckless coward, but who throughout the war has one actually does have a consistent uh, aim, and that is to end the war, (laughs) to stop fighting. And, uh, you know, that did not win him uh, the respect of the the warriors around him. But, uh, you know, it's certainly something that is a modern person can look at sympathetically.
2: Yeah, was there anything you came across in your research that really surprised you about this history? Any aha moments?
1: Uh, when I found out about the 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 uh, when I and I found it from first from reading uh, the McCullough Reformation book, and then from there I I was like what, and then I went to read Francis Yates Rosicrucian Enlightenment, the role of the of the Rosicrucian pamphlets <laughs> yes. uh, in, in inspiring the the messianic. Uh, movement of the, of, uh, the electropalytate to claim the Bohemian crown. That was that was very surprising and also one of those moments that just sent this like wave of like historical deja vu through me uh, and really highlighted the way that we're dealing with uh, mass literacy reformatting the mind of the European subject, uh, the way that our brains are being reformatted by the the internet.
2: Uh, absolutely i mean the the Rosecution story is fascinating and and, the, and then it's further uh permutations throughout history i mean the, you know there's a there's a rosicrucian um complex in silicon valley in the heart oh, of Silicon sure. Valley, with mm-hmm. um with all these uh big Egyptian uh structures, like they have sure, a pyramid and yeah. Sphinx. Mm-hmm. And years ago, I taught at Santa Clara University, and I had a student who wanted to do Egyptology, and she transferred down to UCLA and actually learned some ancient Egyptian, and went to the to view the Rosicrucian Museum, and um they ask you they would ask you to say this uh, prayer in ancient Egyptian or whatever they thought it was, um, that just, like just, just to honor the gods. And she took it home and translated it. And it was an induction prayer into their, uh, into their cult. (laughs) Um, that's, that's existing right in the heart of Silicon Valley and makes you wonder, um, um, what would maybe, maybe this was one of it, but what what's what's the wildest moment in this history? Um, the most fun to talk about. I mean, I, I think that, um, this Rosh thing could be compared to an early modern, uh, QAnon, um, burning Burn. witches, troops running amok, diplomats being famously thrown out of windows and being either saved by angels or, or saved by a pile of, uh, manure, depending upon your, um, uh, your religion. I mean, so much wild stuff. What, uh, What's, 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 what's the most, Chris, what's the most, the most fun, uh, story here?
0: Uh, well, I don't want to give away too much to people who might listen, but there is a, a, a red wedding like scene in, in yes. this, uh, in this show. Um, I kind of combining this question and the last question, I'm very fond to, uh, a lot of the, the role of, uh, alchemy and the occult mm. in the courts of Europe around this time, just because I, I enjoy talking about that stuff. Um, And getting a better sense of like what that meant at the time, and the extent to which alchemy functioned as, alternately, um, alternately either like the the advanced research like skunk works of a of a pre modern or modernizing state, or like the guys who submit white papers now, uh, you know, uh, policy proposals from high level points of thought and and divinity at their point. Divination at our point, they would say they would call it uh, data and stats, but it is still basically the same thing. It is appearing into the matrix of the world and divining the perfect proposal for your uh, for your your uh, leader, for your sovereign and hopes that they will grant you favor in the future. Uh, Which whether that is... really
1: and it, uh, boils down to anticipating what they wanted to do anyway yes. and, <laughs> and giving them an excuse.
2: And and it but, it, but it's also proto science. I mean, there, mm-hmm. yes. um some some actual scientific method does come out of. Oh yeah, it's I mean, it is this. It's
1: it's this transitionary fossil. Like it's a, it's a way of seeing. It's 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 people who are trying to do science without a, a agreed upon scientific method to do it with, uh, and it, it's this collective yearning towards some systemic way of understanding the world that brings these people together things. And it, it's through the printing press that allows that to happen. And the Rosicrucian pamphlets end up being crucial to that. People inspired by reading them, start acting like Rosicrucians and start doing <laughs> their own, creating their own uh, groups, like hoping that they would be contacted by them. And some of those people end up doing things like finding, uh, founding the national science Academy in, in England. That's one of the most important crucibles of applied scientific uh, uh, technology in, in the, in the, and midwives, the Industrial Revolution.
2: Yeah. And so, I mean, the 30 Years War uh, famously is is prime uh, picking for a lot of snarky nerd humor and adolescent obsession with all the, the strange and hor- horrifying stuff. I mean, it gets really grisly and dark and, and that's a lot of fun for uh for a lot of middle school and a lot of high school kids. Um I was there. Um, but at some point this can this obsession with the the really awful stuff um can lead to just appealing to period interests, a sensationalism of the macabre. Um and sort of lowest common denominator, and I I, th- I, I think about these subjects a lot because I, I work on colonial violence and mm-hmm. and violence in Cold War Southeast Asia, and I'm always concerned when my research on murder cases, for example, might cross the line into uh, true crime or just sort of a um, an almost sort of pornographic interest in these really shocking moments of of mass violence in the Cold War obsession with what Susan Sontag called you know the the sufferings of other, um, but that's so it 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 is undeniably fascinating um and it does have a, an appeal especially like the the horrors that germany descends to into in this period i mean the the series is called hell on earth and i remember in high school looking at the depopulation maps of um western germany in this time period and it's just astounding so how i mean how do you balance this this wild stuff and this this you know this Fascinating, horrifying stuff. With um, what's really important about history, and not getting mired down in the morbidity.
1: Well, one one decision we kind of made is that we we took the opportunity once the, uh, Gustavus Adolphus dies and the momentum of conflict is sort of dissipated, and you get that uh, the stalemate, the 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 back and forth stuff. Uh, the stuff that uh, CV Wedgwood just stopped writing about because she thought it was boring. Uh, <laughs> she just stops halfway through the war because it's no longer interesting. Um, uh, we 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 thought that lull would be a good place where we could just like focus on that. Like that's the episode I think you listen to, uh, and that's really where we're able to you know get into the really the horrifying nitty gritty of it and give an idea of the, the, the horror that was being visited on Germany without it taking over the narrative. Once you get to that episode, it can color everything that you heard before and everything that comes later without it having to keep coming up over and over again in grisly details.
2: Is this when you talk about the the lives of the soldiers and the difference between um, men of war and, and- normal yeah, men, yeah. Or whatever the, the German term is. I mean, you know, as Homer Simpson said, those Germans yeah, have yes, a term yes, for yes. everything. Kriegsvolk right? as they call it. Kriegsvolk. Themselves. But yes. I mean, I I thought that was actually really like uh, historically empathetic to to get into their eyes. I mean you you can look at these soldiers as this horrible locust that descends upon the land, but what, what are their options and what what would their choices be in this time period?
1: Yeah. And the life of a soldier, like it is a social world in itself and it has Absolutely. reinforcing structures of belief, honor codes, uh, uh, disciplinary mechanisms uh, and uh, 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 social expectations that are defined in their uh, separation and and hostility to the more settled world around them that they are predating upon.
2: And I just taught. um, um uh, master seminar on genocide and we read several books about the occupation of the East and uh, probably the one that, uh, of Eastern Europe and, and the Nazis. And one of the ones I think that had the biggest impact on us was this, a newer book called Drunk on Genocide about alcohol consumption in Nazi Germany. And it just goes into the, the intersection of performative masculinity um, alcohol use and um just wanton violence and the way that descended upon Eastern Europe. And it was, it was actually really a much tougher read than any of us had, had really expected because it has a sort of, you know, with, you with know catchy all the, title, drunk on genocide, alcohol in the third Reich." Um, but in it, reading about that made me think so much about the, um, what was visited upon Germany in, in this time period in the 30 years war with this radical depopulation, the impact on the civilians. I mean, it really is. And it, it takes, uh, Generation centuries for some parts of Germany to recover from this, right?
0: Yes, I think it was from some of the stuff that I read, like even by the 1800s, there were places that were just getting back to their pre 30 years war level. Yeah, uh, I, I would also just say about the uh, the violence and the, um, you know, the purient stuff that yeah. that to me. Trying to be a producer of a podcast uh, that I hope functions both as a work of history and as a piece of entertainment, uh, that that stuff is the door that you open to be like, hey, would you like to see some real, some real messed up stuff? Uh, I've got some real, a real house of horrors inside of here to show you. Then that's the hook. And then you come in and you're like, but there's, it's actually built on top of this fascinating history and these people who are in the end not too different from us, Um, you know, both. It, in, in all ways that you can conceive, and so uh, getting to use the the purient, the spectacular violence uh, as a way to make some make it interesting uh, is is you know that that's that's my my hook on the series, and you know also not to be too glib about it, but it, it certainly helps when you're talking about uh, German on German violence and not the uh, <laughs> brutalities of colonial genocide uh across the across the world but you know uh we're all, we're all bohemians in this story
2: pain, pain for sins yet to come yes yes yeah, exactly. yeah fair enough fair enough um Although certainly about, to some
0: of these yeah. people uh you know looking at you know the Transylvanians coming into you know the Alsace or something might look at the uh each other the same way that later generations would look at, at some of their colonial exploits uh, so you know it's a, every 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 generation is is alien to the next yeah um i was really happy to see
2: you guys were touching on the um the the new findings in environmental history and can you tell us a bit about the climate fluctuations and the role this plays in uh in the 30 years war
1: so there is uh, uh as as this is happening uh the mid 17th century is the climax of this dramatic drop in global temperatures Uh, That's known as the Little Ice Age. It persists uh, for centuries, this lowered uh, baseline, but the real drop happens in the early 17th century. uh, And it leads to a catastrophic decline in the agricultural output that the social order depended upon. And being still a feudal, uh, largely feudal uh, mode of production, there's no mechanisms for the sort of uh, improvement the the uh, efficiency improvement in agriculture uh, that might make up for it. Uh, everyone uh, every everyone from a peasant to the the, the dynasts are forced to just uh, uh, subsist on less and uh, if they want and if uh, ruling elites want uh, to sustain their level of consumption or increase it then they have to take it from someone else. that there is no way to uh, increase the pie uh and that leads to this massive amount of violence that waves that doesn't just hit europe i mean the the um, ming dynasty uh, in china is brought down uh during the same period by this same crisis uh the ottomans who you'd think would be able to take this opportunity uh to w- with their uh, internal habsburg enemies fighting to the death in germany to strike into the the underbelly of europe they can't do it because they're also in the, racked with uh rebellions and uh, and coups and counter coups, at, and in the palace, uh, and it's that kind. Con- it, it, it is a system that, as we said, is already under this huge stress. You've already seen the cracks starting to emerge, with the Protestant Reformation being the cultural expression th- of that. This new wave, this mode of life in the uh, northern European cities, that can no longer be uh, made legible by medieval Catholic social world. Uh, that that those that's already a deeply uh, ingrained schism now that is that is uh, leading towards the creation of these confessional uh, diplomatic blocks who are now in conflict with one another. All of that is put into hyperdrive by the, this relatively sudden dr- and very dramatic uh, series of uh, crop failures, uh, long winters, uh, the flouts, fr- floods and droughts. That uh, knocked the, the pins out from behind the entire mode of production.
0: I will say, also, just talking about uh, resonances. Um, I think I saw a post in the fall. Uh, some somebody was posting from Germany, showing a picture of a floodstone uh, that was posted at the uh, low ebb of or the low ebb of a, a river during a drought that was just revealed again for the first time since 1632. Yes. Yep, uh, right Jenna in the middle said, of this war. If you warm. see this cry, I believe it was something like that. <laughs> yes, uh, and and also, you know, I've I've seen this argument, or I've I've seen this this posited, and I think Matt relayed this to me. Just, you know talking about this period of climate change that there, you know, there are a lot of causes people still speculate on what it is. There's a a diminishing of sunspots. The sun Mm -hmm. literally got dimmer in this, uh, in this time. But also I have seen speculation that the rapid depopulation of the new world in, uh, uh, after European contact and the, uh, you know, the, the spread of European diseases, the rapid depopulation of the new world, uh, led to vast, previously inhabited areas in uh, the Americas uh, reforesting and as places stopped mm-hmm. having people living in them which turned America into a massive carbon sink which yep. may have contributed to that so you know it's obviously very very different circumstances than the kind of climate change we're going to now but it is still arguable that this is a period of man-made climate change from our you know it, humankind's industry on the world although it is in a different direction
2: yeah and um if, I don't know if you've seen uh the book uh on tambora the volcano in um in Indonesia that blew in eighteen fifteen uh, uh Gillen darcy wood has a fantastic book about tambora that charts around the world all the different impacts from Mary Shelley you know writing Frankenstein to um uh peasants in kunming turning to opium production to um Uh, fluctuations in currents in the Bay of Bengal leading to a transformation in the cholera bacillus in 1817 that leads to the form of cholera that we all know and love today (laughs) that's been with us through uh, like seven pandemics now and I I, I find these what what hard science is able to tell historians now about the climactic variables and and um that uh that, that, that have shaped human uh, history and decisions just so fascinating and so enlightening. Cause we didn't know this, you know, 30, 40 years ago. And, and because of the current classes, we're, we're a bit more to, uh, tuned to it. So, okay. I got a question for you. Um, what was the most important moment in all of this history and why is it the founding of the Dutch East India company, the VOC <laughs> in 1602?
1: Yes. No, I think <laughs> you're correct about that. But, Cause that is, uh, the, the, the corporation is going to be the technology of technologies that's able to bring together a lot of disparate innovations and apply them uh, and but it's it's in it's, but you know the creation of the uh, of the that structure is inextricable from the the this uh, story of religious and cultural conflict because this is the the creation of the Dutch engine company is part of the broader, uh, struggle of the the Dutch of the, the the Calvinist Dutch to uh overthrow the the yoke of Spanish uh, Catholic it, tyranny
2: it, it, it's such a uh, Calvinist thing to do mm-hmm. yeah right the, the Catholic the Catholics in in the Iberian Peninsula don't think this way right I mean yeah, it's, yes. it's so culturally contingent as well as uh, linked to trade and so forth right exactly yeah
1: and then it it it, 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 it it's uh comparative advantage. Uh, to, for example, the Spanish mode of colonization, which did bring an incredible amount of money to uh, the the Spanish crown, but was in a ma- horrifically uh, inefficient fashion in, in a way that over time uh, destroyed uh, its own wealth uh, and undermined the, the 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 wealth of the imperial core in Spain. Uh, the 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 Dutch model is able to. Uh, With stunning rapidity uh, overtake it, the, the, the empire that they're separating from uh, and then impose this new way of being way of seeing the world uh, onto uh, the whole globe.
0: It's also that, you know, we're talking, we we end the chunk of this series of the 30 years war on, you know, the peace of Westphalia and the new creations of new conceptions of what a state is. And I think it's very telling that at this time, this kind of model of a way of exerting financial and power authority outside and parallel to the, what will become the state, uh, that that comes up at the ex- exact same time and kind of plants the seeds for these p- what ends up becoming parallel, and then you know, sometimes we sometimes absorbing the state itself. Uh, power structures um, is is one of the most important developments of modernity. Uh, yeah, I mean, and, uh, when we were recording the last batch of episodes, I was trying to uh, you know make Matt say, okay, well, give me a date when did capitalism begin? And the one that I was arguing for was the creation of the Dutch East, East India Trading Company, which I believe we will talk about. We do talk about in the series. Directly. Oh yeah.
2: Yeah, no, and, and you you are one hundred percent correct. And we had a big battle in my department a couple of years ago trying to put <laughs> years on the world history surveys, and I was arguing for sixteen oh two, which um, uh, I lost. They just went with <laughs> well, fifteen hundred. I, oh, I do end the series
1: ago. though with the Glorious Revolution because sixteen eighty eight is is yeah. sort of the political spawning, yeah. I think, because. It's when th- of those. Uh, it's when a state emerges that's able to take those things and use use them uh, uh, most effectively. Like because the 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 very creation of the uh, West, the Dutch East India Company, uh, it, it ends up you know creating structures that make the Dutch apogee relatively short. Uh, it it creates these uh, generational uh, ties between corporate ownership. Uh, and the, the handful of families that began the company uh, that undermines uh, the Dutch ability to compete against a ri- the rising power of, of England. Uh, and then it is essentially the leveraged buyout of uh, the Dutch of the English monarchy uh, that uh, finally uh, synthesizes all of this into a political form uh, that can finally dominate the globe.
2: Yeah. And, and geography plays a role there. I mean, the, England has, you know, the, the benefits of, of being on the, the periphery with easy access to the ghost acres of the new world. And then as we move forward a little bit, happens to have the coal and the iron. The and, coal. And yeah,
1: they're the really in the thing, Goldilocks you know? zone there for everything yeah. that is going to come together. And like the fact that they're on the periphery for so long uh, is crucial to it because they become the archetypal sort of striving middle class state among the states of Europe the one motivated most to try to take these chances and to struggle because of their precarious position between these greater powers for so long.
2: Yeah. Yeah. So hey, you've both been really generous with your time, but we've got, I got two questions before I let you go. These are the the new books debriefing questions. Um, first, uh, maybe starting with uh, Matt, can you suggest two books for our audience? You mentioned a couple, um, two books for our audience.
1: Okay. Uh, one, one, that I really like, and I really enjoy the way that it's uh, structured. Uh, It's not just about the 30 years war. It's about the broader era. Uh, It's called the four horsemen of the apocalypse, religion, famine. I'm sorry, religion, war, famine, and death in reformation Europe by Andrew Cunningham and Oli Peter Grell. Uh, And it is divided into four chapters corresponding to the four horsemen of the apocalypse. uh, And it talks about how uh, this era roughly from, uh, fifteen, seventeen to 14, uh, 1648, uh, uh, is, uh, the way this era, uh, affects people, uh, in terms of warfare, uh, famines, um, uh, the religious revelations of the time, uh, and, and then just the experience, the mass experience of death that is, uh, part and parcel to the, to the moment. So that's uh, a good one. Uh, another broader history that's good if you want something that kind of gets uh, the entire era uh, and, and links everything together uh, and has, like, the Thirty Years' War as a part of it uh, is a book called Christendom Destroyed, uh, uh, Europe from 1517 to 1648 by Mark Greengrass. That's a really good uh, 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 survey
0: of the era.
2: Chris? any suggestions
0: yeah um yeah i'll do one that we both read for this that i think we both recommend it is a book called uh brand luther by mm-hmm. andrew pettigrew uh which is i think brand brand luther brand luther yeah. uh which i think maybe um is is slightly on the side of pop history, but it's it, a lot of really good information in there. And it, uh, tracks basically, it's basically a biography of Luther's life, but specifically oriented around the development of the printing industry, specifically yeah. around Luther and how they could not exist without each other. Uh, but also gets into how Luther in, a, in addition to one of the many, um, uh many things he is he was one of the first guys to be a uh, a brand manager uh Mm -hmm. that it's not just how he was writing but it was how he was supervising printing how he was supervising distribution how he's supervising art for all these things that he it's uh it's it it both elucidates all the things about his his life and his specific writing and the history around him that made him a singular uh um person in history but also is this technol technological history of the moment in printing that he exi- that he existed within um that was really influential with a it's just a great read and it's not that long it's i like think like 300 pages and zips by a lot of great anecdotes in it and really helped shape the way that you know we were placing luther within this series um and if if uh if you're like me it'll make you fall in love with that ornery uh argumentative <laughs> uh, monk and then the other one, I, I haven't quite finished this yet, but I've read a lot of it and I've, I've been pulling little chunks of it to cover, color some of the stuff we've been writing. But uh, The Adventures of Simplicius Simplicimus, um, which is yes, by- Yes, the
1: German Don Quixote.
0: Yeah, which is by Grimmel Alsen. Um, it is a novel from a little after the um, the 30 Years War, I think 1660s, 16, 1670s 16, 16, he wrote it. But it is basically, it is like uh, German Forrest Gump. <laughs> uh, a a kind of idiot kid raised in the woods, swept up in the vicissitudes of the war, seeing all of the horrors, but also writing about it with a kind of a blunt simplicity that um, makes it often very, very funny. And I've been reading the, the Penguin Classics trans- translation of it, which I appreciate. It has a very uh, casual and modern tone to it, which I, I think... It Get, really gets out how you wanted this to be received is like reading from the dumb kid from one town over, reading him, listen to his adventures uh, through the war. Uh, it's it's good. It's funny. It's a really easily easy read. And uh, I think it, it it gives you a lot of the sense of what the war would have been like to the people who were just living in Germany at that time. Didn't really have any stake in it one way or another
2: okay and um and chris what uh what are you working on now what can we hope to see from you get from
0: you next i'm really just hoping on (laughs) uh finishing this and then taking her easy um i'll be practicing my dj skills after this and hope to (laughs) uh go out and do some club sets uh once uh, i get better uh, uh at it after this um i do have an idea for matt and i's another history podcast that we can do that i i won't Say what it is because who knows if we ever do it i need to take at least a year off doing one of these but i would like to maybe one day finish a trilogy of these history podcasts at least i will say that it is much more modern uh more in the 21st <laughs> century if we end up doing this idea um and is is kind of more cultural than political though it would be uh um welded as always to to matt's innate and and genius understanding of how structural conditions And material conditions uh, shape the world around us. Yeah,
2: and are are you still doing new episodes of and and introducing?
0: Oh God, yes, I can talk about that stuff too. I I do and introducing with uh, my wife Molly. That's a a podcast about words, about music, about books, about music. We Mm -hmm. on a typical like our classic episodes, we'll read an artist memoir and talk about it. Uh, We've been kind of dark this year, only listening, listing, uh, releasing episodes intermittently, but we've got at least three planned on the books for the first few months of. Next year, that's where you can get podcasts anywhere. We're reading the Bono book. Bono's got a book out that's like, according to Molly, about half music and half him hanging out with rich philanthropists. Uh, so there are uh, a, lo- a lot of people in the flight lo- in the flight logs that Bono runs into there, but uh, not Bono himself. That sounds um, really painful. She, she says it's really good. I'm. Yeah. Uh, we'll have fun with it. Uh, so that's anywhere you get podcasts at and introducing, and if you're a real, real bookhead, uh, Molly and I had a quarantine project that is still ongoing, uh, that is a completely unedited off the top of our domes, uh, podcast reading of infinite jest called infinite cast, where she just reads me a 20 to 30 minute segment. And then we talk about it each uh, episode and we are almost done with the book. We are within like 120 pages. How do you guys handle the footnotes? Uh, we just go straight to them and read them and then come back. Because some of those footnotes are, are chapter length. Yeah, we have uh, our longest episode is the um, uh, hour 20 episode where we're just reading the filmography of uh, James and Contenza. <laughs> it's one of my favorite ones. It's it's quite entertaining.
2: Yeah, the, the filmography. I remember that. Yeah. Um, Matt, what are you working on? Uh,
0: not. In, uh, yeah, this is
1: we're finishing this up uh, after that. Yeah, I'll, I'm probably going to want to try to hit the ground, take this writing energy and try to put something together for a maybe one or two episode series for uh inebriated past for Chapo. Uh, mm-hmm. I've been teasing doing the Spanish civil war for a while and I might, I might go into that.
2: I've, I've really enjoyed those episodes. I remember years ago you did one on fascism that um, I think was uh, when my wife first turned me on to uh, Chapo and, and really got me hooked. Um, that was, uh, that was an old one. Um, and you're, you're also putting out episodes of hinge points.
1: Yeah. Yeah. We have, I think a couple more left in the chamber. No, hinge points is done for now. Oh, it's oh, right. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. We'll, we'll, uh, but we'll probably do the third events. season later in the year in 2023.
0: I mean, the real answer is both of us. We, we are still working on chapo two episodes every week. Uh, show, uh, it's, you know, that's, that's still what I think we both try to make, you know, our main thing. We try to get, try to keep the chapo as, as good as it can possibly be. Uh, we both so love doing the show, and that will continue, uh, forever.
2: Yep. Well, we we, we are a gray wolf household, and mm-hmm. uh, here in Santa Cruz, and we will we will continue listening. Um, uh, before I forget, um, Chris, do you want a quick reminder on where people can find um this podcast, uh, Hell on Earth?
0: Hell on Earth uh, launches Wednesday, January 11th. You can find all episodes of. Hell on Earth on Chapo Trap House's Patreon, patreon.com slash Chapo Trap House. You could subscribe for as low as, I think, $4.70 a month, or we are offering yearly subscriptions now for something like $54. You can save about 10% of a year if you on a year if you subscribe to Chapo Trap House's Patreon for a year, but they will all be. Paywall, other than the first episode, they will all be uh, paywalled, unfortunately, behind Chapo Trap House's Patreon, but you can subscribe there, get all that content. Uh, Fine with me if you just stick around while we're doing uh, Hell on Earth. You can go back and find all of Matt's uh, history episodes, most of which are uh, on Patreon. Most of the Hinge Points episodes about history are on Patreon. There's a lot of good stuff for you if you want to stop by, uh, hoover up all the history content, and then, hey, stick around. Maybe you like Chapo Trap House itself. I'll tell you, it's a funny show. It's all
2: right. It's all right. Um, <laughs> um, Chris and Matt, thank you so much for chatting with me today. Yeah, thank, thank you, you so for much us. for having us. Yeah. So this has been a conversation with Chris Wade and Matt Chrisman about their podcast, Hell on Earth, The 30 Years War. I'm Michael Van of Sacramento State University, and this has been an episode of New Books in History, a channel on the New Books Network. Thank you for listening.